Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Medevac Podcast. I'm your host for today, Christian Myers, joined by my co-host, David Reed. Hey, guys. How's it going? Before we hop into uh, today's episode, quick reminder, we have moved our YouTube channel over, so make sure you go subscribe and like that. Pause the video and do it right now. Right, right meow. And also let us know in the comments or send us a DM guests that you're interested in seeing and topics that you want us to cover because we listen. We do listen. Yeah. Uh, speaking of guests, our guest today, Rick Boucher, was a firefighter paramedic in Scottsdale. Um, did a lot of really cool stuff, and he has a pretty amazing story that we're going to hop into today. Uh, just a quick side note, we are going to be discussing some pretty heavy topics today, so prepare yourself. Uh, and welcome, Rick. Thanks for coming awesome. on, man. Thank you. Fabulous guest, and I think our first first responder on the show. I think so, yeah. Which is great, because we want to definitely showcase this aspect of our nation's heroes. Yeah. So first thank you for joining yeah. the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely wonderful. And hey, first always... thing I have to do, correct Christian, it's actually Booker. Booker. But oh. I've heard every different pronunciation. Of How embarrassing. Booker, Booker <laughs> Boucher, Booker, like you name Booker. it. I've, I've heard it all. <laughs> Boucher, yeah. Booker. Well, that's, that's great. Yeah. Well, let's hop in. I always like to start with, you know, what kind of motivated you to want to be a firefighter? Poor judgment. <laughs> Mostly. Yeah, it's nothing to do. Yeah. Uh, the cliche answer to that question is I really like helping people. And that's what every firefighter candidate says in an oral board interview. Yeah. Um, that is kind of at the heart of it for every firefighter. But um, I, w- I was at a point where I was going to community college and studying the prereqs for a business um, degree. And knew that that was not what I wanted to do within the first semester. And I was racing bicycles and working on a bike shop. Mm. And one of the guys that worked part-time there was a Phoenix firefighter. Okay. And he said, hey, anytime any of you guys want to come do a ride-along, come do it. So I was the only one that actually took him up on it. Because yeah. again, I was kind of searching at that point, and, but didn't realize that I was kind of looking for something else to do. And how old were you at this point? I was 19. 19. Okay. Yeah. So uh, just about ready to move out of the house, uh, kind of, you know, just at a transition in life. Mm-hmm. Just hit me at just the right time. So, so I go do this ride along with, with my buddy Hugh, um, and nothing happens. <laughs> so I showed up in the morning. We went to the grocery store, got, got groceries for dinner, um, did some stuff around the station, really quiet day. Yeah. There's something called rider's curse and every firefighter knows about it. And it's when you have a ride along at the station, nothing cool is going to happen. Yeah, you get the of most course. boring day right. ever. And then as soon as they leave, the tones drop yeah. and you go on something amazing. So you might as well just become like, a firefighter. So. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you get some action. Yeah, you just stay the whole time. Uh, sure enough, we, we, we do dinner at the station. We're doing dishes and the tones drop for a house fire. Oh, no shit. Okay. You get an actual fire, huh? Oh, a, a good worker too, yeah. So before I know it, we've run out to the truck, climbed in. We're driving on the wrong side of <laughs> Thunderbird Road in Phoenix with the lights and sirens wailing, and I'm watching my How buddy cool Hugh. You feel? <laughs> it, this was happening so fast, I didn't have time to feel yeah. anything, really. So he and his partner are putting their turnout gear on, their air packs, and, and all this is happening in the blink of an eye. And we pull into this cul-de-sac, there's a model home that's on fire, mm. black smoke pumping out of the front door. Hugh and his crew disappear into the, the darkness <laughs> the with darkness. a hose. <laughs> that black smoke turns white uh, because they, they knock down the fire, 
rinse the steam and you know, put the fire out. And they, they all come walking out covered in insulation from pulling ceiling. And we're driving back to the station after wrapping everything up and an hour later. And I thought, I, I think I just found it. Yeah. Like this is... Oh, absolutely. This is right up my alley. Yeah. Yeah. So that call, like that day, that ride along with Hugh in Phoenix started the really a path for more than half of the rest of my life. Yeah. Do you think that if you didn't have an exciting call that day that you would have lost inspiration to join? A hundred percent. Yeah. A hundred percent. That 99% so that boring. Was, yeah. When you, when you over. look at, at the way things just line up in the universe, mm -hmm. it couldn't have happened any differently mm. in order to send me on the, on the path that, that I took. Yeah, so, that's incredible. And I, I do, I, I'm a big advocate in believing that, yeah. you know, things line up. Everything a happens way. for a reason. Yeah, right. It sounds Absolutely. like bullshit. But and in hindsight, you look at it and you're like, of course. You right. Know. So the next day, I walk to my local fire station. I'm living in an apartment and um, it's about a three block walk. I cruise down and I walk in and, hey, are there any jobs here? This was in the 90s, right? Early 90s where you still did that. Sure. Yeah. The internet was, was new. Yeah. Which um, so was brand new. Um, the fire captain, uh, whose desk I was standing at, said, you know, looks up from filling out run reports and stuff and says, are you an EMT? No. <laughs> Go to Scottsdale Community College, get your EMT cert. Yeah. Okay. I know right where that is because yeah. that's where I am going. And it was between semesters. So I, I went home, got on my motorcycle, rode to SCC, signed up for EMT class. That day. Yeah. That day. Yeah. Um, so you had the plan, you had the direction. I didn't have a plan, but I had some direction. And it okay. was just one step, yeah. which was get your EMT cert. So it was just take it okay. a step at a time. Yeah. Yeah. But at this point, I didn't even know what the steps were mm -hmm. because that wasn't really lined out for you the way it is today. Yeah. Sure. Today, you you stand in a line of 4,000 people yeah. to get an application, yeah. then fill that out, yep. then come back. And, you know, there's a process. There's, yeah, huge process. Um, back then, at least in Scottsdale, it was different. So go to EMT school. I think I finished third in class, got an A, back to the fire station. Yeah. Same hey. captain. <laughs> Same captain is there. And <laughs> at, at that point, there were two shifts. is A shift, B shift. Okay. So the A shift captain is, is there again. Walk in and said, hey, I got my EMT cert. How long did that take, that process? It was a semester. Okay. So just a semester. Yeah. Okay. So pretty quick, a few yeah. months. I walk back in. Hey, I got my EMT cert. Yeah, good job. Uh, you got any fire science classes? <laughs> Nope. <laughs> Back to SCC. So this is so, where that like common sense sits in where you, you know, can just be like, hey, brother, you've already given me a piece of advice. One. Yeah. Like, <laughs> can you save me two or three more trips here? Just tell yeah. me like what I need to do. Right. Did he Here's recognize you? Thing. He did, even if he didn't act like it. Oh, okay. Sure. Right? Yeah. That was the first part of the hiring process. If you think about it. Yeah. The first test is getting the balls to walk into a fire station that you don't know anything about except for one ride along mm -hmm. and standing in front of a captain's desk. Hey, are there any jobs here? First test. Yeah. Yeah. Second was go get your EMT. 
third was going to take a fire hydraulics class, which is a class that experienced firefighters take when they're getting ready to drive the truck and mm. set the pump and work a fire. To become an engineer? But that was the only, yes. Okay. That was the only class that was available that was left. So, mm. okay. Okay. I get another A. Meet some experienced firefighters. Back to the station. Hey, I got my EMT and some fire science. Any jobs here? Different captain? Yes, there are. I'm hiring reserve firefighters. I just took, took over the program. He said, come back Tuesday. We do reserve drill on Tuesday nights. I showed up. There were a bunch of, bunch of people in blue pants, red shirts, yellow helmets out in front of the, the bay, and they're rolling hose. So they roll it up, and an inch and three quarter, it's in a, it's in a roll about you know, that tall. Okay. Yeah. It's 40 pounds. Mm-hmm. And you hold on to the ends of it, and you toss the roll, and, you know, people are throwing it, and it's, you know, falling over and not paying out, right? So it's supposed to roll directly straight out, yeah. right? So okay. somebody says, hey, you want to try it? Okay, And I'm in jeans and a T-shirt. They give me their helmet and gloves, and, and I'd been watching. So I take this double inch and three-quarter roll, take three steps like I'm bowling, and roll it out, and it pays out perfectly. <laughs> Dang. It was like, all because I that did my first course. fire thing, <laughs> right? Yeah, like I'm a firefighter. Well, that, that captain that said yes, there are jobs here was watching. Ooh, oh, good. And timing. at the end of the evening, he said, "A shift, B shift." He said, "Come back Thursday. I'll be on shift. I'll get you set up with your paperwork." Mm-hmm. Oh, that's okay. awesome. So before I know, it, one thing leads to another, and over the course of a couple of weeks, I've your analysis, drug test, uh, background check. And I'm standing in a uniform store getting my blue pants, first pair of steel toe boots, shiny as hell, uh, and a red recruit shirt. And walk us through how you're feeling at this moment. Awesome. Yeah, you got to be on top of the world. Like it feels really good. Like you, it must have felt like you received your calling right then and there. So when I was pretty little growing up in Fort Worth, Texas, uh, my family was driving home. And there were fire trucks in front of us running code three and they, they passed us mm-hmm. and you could see a little smoke column in the, in the distance and they're driving through our neighbor into our neighborhood and like, Holy shit, they're going exactly the same place. The shed behind our, our house was on fire. That was the first like real kind of fire thing that I saw. Yeah. Um, I watched emergency in the seventies with Johnny and Roy and just, and those guys were badass. They, they had, a working fire, a code, and a and a freaking rescue of some sort or a hazmat every shift. I'm like watching this on TV <laughs> thinking, this is the shit. I'm yeah, really yeah, it. It's awesome. <laughs> you know, I got a picture of me, you know, Fort Worth, Texas fire engine at about age four yeah. sitting in the driver's seat, right? So there's always been that. So like- there's, you know, and every kid wants to be a firefighter. In fact, cops have this in common too. Do you know what cops and firefighters have in common? Let's hear it. They both want to be firefighters. <laughs> so here's the I, camaraderie yeah, happening yeah, right, right now. Yeah. <laughs> so I go back to, uh, I, I go back, I do the fire science classes, I get hired as, as a reserve, and then it begins. Mm. So um, Wildland was a, was played a factor. Uh, wildland firefighting was something that, that everybody did sure. then when they started. I did a couple seasons uh, in the summer in Arizona working for the Forest Service. That was great experience. 
Are you out um, cutting line or just yeah. help, helping? Yeah. Okay. Um, so quickly got got qualified from you know from just carrying a a McLeod or a shovel to carrying a Pulaski and a radio when mm-hmm. I became a squad leader and then a crew boss and then qualified as an engine boss and just. A lot of the stuff that I've done in my life starts innocently enough. And then I just fucking like, if it'll go to, if it'll go to 10, great. But if I can make it go to 11, it it is going to 11. We have a saying, you know, I say at at my house and our business as well. I'm like, always go to 11. (laughs) Because you're going to get there eventually, right? Take it to 11 every time. Take it to 11 every time. Unfortunately, that comes with a cost, which we'll talk about. Um, It does. Fast forward way forward to September 12th, 2019, uh, and that's when I killed myself. So let's, let's fill in heavy. some blanks yeah, uh, between the two. Yeah, let's fill in some blanks leading up to that um, point. Huh? So what I'm going to talk about uh, and the kind of the underlying theme is going to be trauma and how it, how it affected me mm-hmm. and how it presented itself. Yeah. Um, I had no idea what PTSD was on that day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was actually a little while after and until, you know, before I found out what it was and what all the symptoms were. And like, if you take a, a list of, uh, say, 11 common signs and symptoms of PTSD, after that event happened, I could check off nine of them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, holy shit. Okay, I do that. I have that. I do that. So... Go back to uh, being a reserve firefighter um, in Scottsdale before you get hired full time. Back then, back in the day, the course to that was working as a reserve. So it starts okay. out with with ride long time, mm-hmm. and you're paid for you're you're paid an hour at a time for going on calls. I got three twenty five an hour <laughs> back then, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I was still working in a bike shop and I was serving tacos at a Mexican restaurant and doing fire stuff. There's a, we had a little radio pager that would go off. Picture a volunteer fire department in some small mountain town and you hear the, yeah, yeah. okay, this is the equivalent of that. It's like calling <laughs> yeah. all cars, get, yeah. get, go to the fire. So did that for a couple of years and then got hired full time. Um, I've been into rock climbing ever since I moved to Arizona in 87. Mm-hmm. Somehow word got out, and I think it was at a drill, a reserve drill with the fire department. We were doing stuff with rope. Okay. And I could tie knots with my eyes closed. That might have even been what they were doing. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I'm super comfortable with rope. Yeah. And powers that be saw that and said, have you been involved with the technical rescue team at all? No, what's that? Oh, well, they go do mountain rescue and trench rescue and swift water. You know, when it floods and the washes are crazy in Arizona, swift water rescue. Basically, anything that a normal fire truck would pull up to and say, I, I, I don't know. Right? Yeah. It's like Confined fire space, special like, operations, right? It is. It's yeah. spec ops for the fire department. Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. Yeah. So typically, that's a seniority based uh, position. Mm-hmm. So firefighters. Now, firefighters are doing 25 years. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about how that's totally messed up and how it relates to the trauma and that. But when I, when I was in, we did 20 years before eligible for retirement. Mm-hmm. Typically, a, a firefighter won't get onto the TRT team until they have around about 10 years, mm-hmm. maybe 15 years in some cases yeah. on. So they'll do 
they'll do like five, maybe 10 years yeah. of, of technical rescue. My first day as a rescue tech in Scottsdale was right out of the academy because they knew I, you know, I had, I had rope experience and yeah. rope forms the foundation, as you know, for, for all of those different rescue disciplines. Absolutely. So instead of five or 10 years of TRT experience, along with running calls, um, medical calls, fire calls, all the normal stuff. Uh, so all the stations that I worked at as a rescue tech had a fire truck and the, the support truck or the big rolling toolbox. Mm-hmm. You could say a, a fire truck's a freaking toolbox too because yeah. it's full of tools. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> my first day as a rescue tech was right out of the academy. So I got about 27 years of rescue experience. Yeah, which is substantial comparatively. It's a lot. Yeah. It's yeah. a lot. Now, being the guy that cranked things up to 11 and being uh, a total believer in teaching everything that you know, mm-hmm. when I got to a point where I could do that and it was presented as an option, I was all over it. So I taught regional TRT, the entire East Valley of Phoenix, uh, Scottsdale, Mesa, Tempe, Chandler, all, all the East Valley departments. Mm-hmm. I, I started teaching quarterly training for, for that. And there's a training consortium. All those cities put manpower together and they have a teaching pool. So I was like, I want to dive into that pool, please. And it just, it started, I think I started teaching mountain rescue first. But then I thought, we're not at 11 yet. Um, give me trench rescue. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're getting there. Uh, yeah. Give me tower rescue, power line, you know. Okay, check that off. Uh, give me confined space. Yeah, like, come, come on. Yeah, more, every, more. What do you got? What do you got? Rate and then, you, get. you know, yeah. I get to 11. I'm teaching every discipline there is with technical rescue. And the one way to get really good at something is to teach it. Absolutely. Yeah. So not only am I looking at a curriculum and basing some of my training that I'm presenting on what I had done in the past for those topics, now my creative artistic side is coming up, coming in, and I'm, I'm looking at different ways to do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, just driving around or mountain biking or hiking. Oh, th- that's a perfect cliff. I'm training there next time. Yeah. Um, there's a water treatment plant. I got to call the city. I'm going to see if I can, can we get in there? That, those kind of things motivated me to, mm-hmm. to get really good at mm. training. Um, but Having done the same thing, the same training evolution year after year in the same place motivated me to completely change it. Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. Consequently, people liked coming to my to my drills. Mm-hmm. I did things with a deck of cards, like to see who's gonna go first. Like I just I I just made it I thought, what would engage me if I were a learner? Yeah. And I did that. Make it a little more exciting. But then on the back end of that, when I was running those calls, they were Kind of easy for me. Mm-hmm. Well, because you were easy, harder than the... Uh, they were easy m- manipulatively. Mm. Yeah. Okay, yes, I know how to tie these knots. Yes, I know how to set up this equipment. That, that's great. But mentally, um, not so much. Yeah. So PTSD is a clever little bitch. Absolutely. Because it's, she disgu- uh, disguises herself really well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for me especially if you're keeping busy all the time exactly she disguises herself as success Mm. 
So let's let's talk about uh, some of my signs and symptoms of, of PTSD. One was isolation, like social isolation. I didn't want to be around people. So I raced bicycles for 30 years, road bikes and mountain bikes. Mm-hmm. There were there were a lot of weeks where I trained for, for upwards of 20 hours. And I raced at a professional level. Mm-hmm. I have the social isolation for 20 hours yep. all week. And, and then she rears her head on the weekend when I win. And Congratulations. Awesome, yeah. And, and, it, and it feels good. It's fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah. But who would have thought, like, I, I couldn't connect the dots. So that was an example. Did you feel like something was missing or, like, did you have a sense that isolation was a predominant issue? Um, so I had, I had one very major thing in my life that kind of um, teed up the golf ball for this whole thing um, in a way. So I was adopted when I was four days old. Mm. Um, nine months after I came into my adoptive family, my parents had a daughter of their own. So there was always competition there, sure. right, from, from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was a weird kid, man. I'm not going to lie to you. I, I played in the band. Mm-hmm. I made, actually, I made first chair all city band in Fort Worth, Texas on the alto sax in middle school. I was the yeah. best freaking saxophone player in the, right? Yeah. I played football too. And baseball and basketball and soccer. I, I did it all. Mm-hmm. My dad was a jock and he pushed me to do that. Mm-hmm. At a, Kind of young age, I discovered BMX. Like pretty much every you guys have BMX bikes. Oh, yeah. your kids? Everybody yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. I didn't have a bike, but I, I, I wanted to Nobody race loved me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to race them. Yeah, yeah. I'm turning. I'm 12 years old, and I'm turning up to 11 already, and I don't even know it, mm-hmm. right? Because I'm competing for attention. Yeah. Right. So that kind of that sowed the seeds or planted the seeds anyway. Trying to prove yourself. So even from a young age. You know, race yeah. bicycles, a band, like the athlete, like the whole thing. Those things and that that sense of teamwork that I learned with sports translates perfectly to the fire department. 100%. Nothing but teamwork. It's also nothing but competition too. Mm-hmm. Everything is a freaking competition. Yeah. Which is fine if you can hang. Yeah, that will a, a rising tide raises all ships. So it's fine. Competition's a good thing, and I believe it's in healthy. it. Healthy, yeah. yeah, for sure. Healthy competition is healthy. Um, so that kind of that carried into the fire department. I'm turning everything up to eleven. I raced motorcycles for years. Mm-hmm. For about six years, I had my AMA Pro license. Mm-hmm. I taught motorcycle racing for for my local sanctioning body. Yeah. So when people came and got their motorcycle license, they were in my class. I mm-hmm. rewrote the curriculum yeah. that I took over. And then I was I was about to dive into AMA road racing and take a leave of absence from the fire department. And then I had a really bad weekend at the track. Mm. Um, Another a, one of those signs, it, you know? It was, but it pushed me in a, in a different way. So I got into motorcycling because I broke my back rock climbing. How the, how does that really, okay. Yeah. So I had, I've had motorcycles. I've been on two wheels my whole life. When I broke my back, I, I had just got on a sport bike and I was looking for a group to ride with. So mm-hmm. I found this group, Phoenix Sport Bike Club online, showed up, 
started riding with them. In fact, I had a back brace on when I, the first time I showed up to meet these guys. And they're like, what's that? I broke my back. You're in. (laughs) Cool. You ride with them. I start riding with those guys. We start riding way too fast on the back roads of Arizona all over the place. And one thing leads to another. I had learned the Motorcycle Safety Foundation curriculum, and I was going to be a rider coach for a local company when I broke my back. Mm-hmm. After I started riding with the sport bike club, they said, hey, um, we do track days. Why don't you come out and do a track day? Okay. One thing leads to another. I start teaching in the beginner group. And then month after month, I get a little faster, a little faster. And they're like, you should be racing. Mm. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Give it a <laughs> shot. So, yeah. So again, cranking it to 11. I won a super bike championship my first year as an amateur. They invited me to teach. Did that. I love teaching. Mm-hmm. I taught motorcycle racing. I was a cycling coach for a while. Yeah. And I'm doing it in the fire department. I'm teaching technical rescue. I'm precepting new paramedics. And the the fulfillment for me was not, hey, look at me, I'm a I'm a freaking teacher or something. Oh. It was, hey, look at this. I freaking love racing bicycles. I want to teach you how. Yeah, you want to I share love your riding motorcycles. Do you want to learn how to race? Yeah. Let's do it. I'll show you. I'll show you what I know. Yeah. Same thing with technical rescue. Same thing with being a paramedic. And and so those that. That's always just been in me, mm-hmm. that feeling of needing to, to share what I know. I know more about PTSD right now than I want to know about mm-hmm. PTSD right now. Yeah. But because I know, and I got some credibility because I freaking have it, mm-hmm. now I can share that sure. with others. Absolutely. So the isolation was one thing, going out training, but... Disguised itself yeah. as yeah. success. Um, I even did that with archery. I, I was a nationally ranked recurve target archer for a while. Seems to me like you dabbled in quite a done a lot of different stuff, of different right? Things. Now, did yeah. you? Let, let, let's kind of a little introspection there. Did you feel like you were missing something in your life? I think I probably was missing some kind of fulfillment. Yeah, mm-hmm. I used to use the analogy that I thought of life as a towel that was soaked with life. Mm-hmm. And I was trying to wring every bit of life out of it yeah. that I could and then drink it. Yeah, mm. <laughs> yeah life's good, yeah. right? Um, but I didn't know. Like, none, none of it made sense. It was with, just, yeah. just who I was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, social isolation, a symptom, uh, hypervigilance, mm-hmm. total symptom. I would never think of going into a restaurant and sitting with my back to the door. So let me, can I, can I pause you real quick and ask, yeah. like, because we get a lot of perspective on the military side of things of PTS. And that's very interesting that you bring up not wanting to, you know, have your back to the rest of the restaurant. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Because you're not in a career where people are going after you. But so how does that translate into first responder hypervigilance? Here's a not really messed up, but kind of a funny story. So Lynn and I are out for dinner in downtown Scottsdale, busy restaurant. I look over and there's a guy standing behind a woman. She's kind of slumped down on her chair and he's got his arms around her. And I like, 
I get up, walk over there, put my hand on his shoulder. Hey, is she choking? And he doesn't say anything. I put my hand on her shoulder, kind of, you know, politely nudge him out of the way. Hey, are you choking? And she, like, like you learn, like, yeah. (laughs) Okay. I get my arms around her, kick the chair out of the way, give her a couple good, good thrusts, nothing, and then give her some real ones. Yeah. And I clear her airway. She had a choke on a piece of steak. And, you know, you can hear it and you can like hear the life going back and everybody sits back down, goes, goes back to eating, goes about the, they're very thankful. Um, but I had this opportunity, right? It just mm-hmm. pre- presented itself. No, people were not a threat, but a heart attack, a, you know, choking, uh, yeah. some, something like that. But Interesting. in, you know, later in my career, yeah, we were trained in, in, mass shooter sure. scenarios. Yeah. So that presence of mind, that situational awareness, mm-hmm. it's, there's, there's a parallel there with, yeah. with the military for sure. Yeah, that makes have a, sense. A different sort of ever-present danger, right? You're always responding what? to local calls where danger exists in your community, right. yeah, not so much for everyone else. Yeah, what's going to happen yeah. now? And it's more what's like from now? a safety perspective as opposed to people are shooting at me perspective. Yeah, right? and, and that's funny too because... Um, I'm thinking about, okay, who, who's in here? Who could possibly be a threat? What could happen? Where's the exit? Yeah. I'd, I would always look for the, where's the kitchen? Because that's where the back door is. I worked in a restaurant mm-hmm. and they're all laid out the same. Yeah. yeah. Um, what if there were a fire? What if there were a kitchen fire? What, like, what would I do if? Yeah. yeah. And that kind of goes back to your training. What, what would you do if? Mm-hmm. And in the military and the fire department and EMS, there are standard operating procedures for a reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This is what you do if. Absolutely. Yeah. The thing about the fire service that appealed to my artistic side was, here's what you do if, but if it's not written here, figure it out. Yeah. You, yeah. you make it up on your own. Dynamic But there's right? so many yeah. different variables yeah. into those where SOPs... Not all the time aligned. It was mm-hmm. it was the same exact thing in rescue. I always explained it as a dynamic response to a dynamic environment, right? We have no idea what we're really going into, and there's no written SOP for every single little procedure that could possibly present itself. Right. So it really is just figuring it out as you go. It is. And apply little things that you've been trained on and to make it work. Here's what makes veteran operators or veteran firefighters so valuable is... You learn every time you run a call. Experience. Okay, so I, I crunched some numbers just for the hell of it. I was trying to figure out, okay, what, how, how much call volume did I have in my career? Yeah. So Scottsdale's a big, a, a good-sized city. Sure. Um, a conservative estimate over my 27 years is about 19,000 calls. And a very conservative estimate of TRT, you know, rescue calls is hundreds. Yeah. So rewind to the firefighter that that does TRT just for the last five or 10 years, that might be a hundred calls. Sure. So I've got, I get a lot more experience and because I'm a senior medic with rescue, when things are really screwed up, they they would send me. Yeah. Like if one person is going in, it, it's going to be me. Yeah, which results in you being exposed to that much more negativity yeah. and that many more traumatic things. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? So it's, it's on, on the one hand, that clever little bitch mm. is 
pounding away at you, but she's providing experience. And now yes. you become the go-to guy and you're like, okay, great. Uh, listen, when I was a firefighter, like my last 10 years, I had shoulder length hair. <laughs> and I saw I, the pictures. Yeah. I'm very upset you cut it. Yeah. Well, I don't, have, <laughs> I don't have command staff to protest against yeah. anymore. So, <laughs> so I can look normal again. Um, but I, I referred to myself as a firefighter in disguise. Mm. I didn't have fire stickers all over my truck. Yeah. Um, I didn't, uh, I didn't wear, uh, shirts that had fire stuff on. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I just, I didn't, if I was away from the department, if I was away from work, I didn't want anything to do with it. It's another avoidance. symptom. Yeah. Avoidance of things that remind you of traumatic mm-hmm. events. I could walk, you could walk into my house back then and who lives here? Yeah. You can walk into a lot of firefighters houses and go, oh, a Holy shit, a firefighter yeah. or a museum keeper. What is all this stuff? Yeah. That kind of, that, that kind sure. of thing. So, so yeah, I just, I would um, distance myself as, as far from the department as I could yeah. when I wasn't there. And ba- basic education on PTSD sim- signs and symptoms is, is so important yeah. because if, as a medical professional, if you're briefed on these signs and symptoms, say, hey, look out for these things, especially as a supervisor, right? Hey, if you're if your men or women are showing signs or symptoms that fall under these categories, maybe have a discussion with them. Maybe op- open up the conversation. Maybe help them seek some sort of treatment. But it seems like, at least a few years ago, in fire and and police or EMS in general, that wasn't so prevalent everywhere. Right. I yeah. mean, like yeah, even in the military in the nineties, yeah. yeah. like PTSD, like there was no help for that. There was no mm-hmm. recognition. It was rub some dirt on it and get yeah. get back to your job. Yeah. And stop yeah, being sure. a bitch. Yeah, man. So up, my right? my rank in the fire department was firefighter, paramedic, and rescue tech. Uh, but I was also qualified as an acting engineer and an acting captain, mm-hmm. so I could do any job on the on any truck in the city. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't always know that that was coming though. Yeah. So yeah. I would I could show up to work and go to the off-going medic and go, hey, how's the shift? You guys do all right? Is everything out there? And they go, yeah, it's good, but you're driving today. Okay, <laughs> got it. And so, so I had to change gears. Okay, yeah. I'm driving, but in addition to being, med- okay. Mm-hmm. Or I'd go in and, and relieve somebody and they'd say, yeah, you're up front today. You're, you're captain. Yeah. Okay, so there's this like instant shift of mindset and mm-hmm. it progressively gets more and more serious. You go from riding in the back of the truck to now I'm driving the truck. Yeah. Yeah. And now I'm driving it on the wrong side of Thunderbird Road with the lights and sirens going to the yeah. house fire. Or I'm in the captain's seat telling the engineer where to go mm-hmm. and making a plan for fire attack or whatever we're going into. So that was an additional stressor. And Let's talk about work comp for a second. So I I did file a work comp claim for PTSD. Mm-hmm. To my knowledge, I was the first. How many years in at this point? This was twenty seven years. So uh, this was twenty seven years. Yeah, and I'm going to tell you what brought me to that. But to my to my knowledge, I was the first firefighter that successfully filed a PTSD claim and had it approved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the board asked what my date of injury was. What day were you hurt? Yeah, because. The industrial commission says, what day did you blow out your knee? Yeah. What day did you hurt your back? What day did you, you know, this. Happened on a there, specific event, right? Yeah. It must what, have. What was the date? Well, over the years, I had my feet crushed in an aerial ladder. I had a ceiling collapse in a, in a house fire, hurt my neck. Yeah. Um, like tons and tons of, of injuries. But I had a bunch of dates that contributed to my PTSD. Of course. Of 27 years of dates. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, do you remember the video game? I think it was called Punch Out. Body Blow, Body Blow. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. I okay. Do. I do know so that. So those repeated pretty shitty calls, the firefighter, paramedics, just firefighters or paramedics, anybody in public safety runs are the body blows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All Those are the cardiac arrests. Those are like the normal cardiac arrests yeah. that are not bad. But then there's this knockout punch every once in a while, and it's the pediatric yes. cardiac arrest, the drowning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the You know, the really catastrophic thing that hits you just right, mm-hmm. and it knows. Uh, I don't have any kids, so I was the peds master. I mean, I, I could innovate uh, an infant and it wouldn't affect me because I didn't see my kid's face there. Mm-hmm. But the medic that's, that's innovating a kid that has one that's exactly the same age, that is freaking trauma. Mm-hmm. And this is a key. Your trauma is your trauma. It doesn't matter if you've had 27 years or 27 days. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And it hits everybody differently. Right. And the, the members that have been on for a long time, they have the body blows. They have the, the, those constant little things and they have the big punctuating knockout punches over time. Yeah. So that is what contributes to complex PTSD. Absolutely. Which is what I got diagnosed with. Now, my date of injury was a technical rescue call that we showed up on um, during monsoon season in the Valley. There were two workers that there's actually a group of three workers that were evacuating water from a 25 foot deep uh, sewer member. That's a, it's like a a grease trap in a strip mall. So all the drains go into this thing and there's a, there's a pump in the bottom of it that usually evacuates the water, the water. Yeah. The sludge. Yeah. It broke and it filled this whole thing. So take, take a 36 inch diameter a concrete pipe. You see them like on the side, on the roadside mm-hmm. in a construction site. Tip them vertical, stack them twenty feet, twenty five feet below grade. That's what these guys were in. Okay? Yeah, they were over, overcome by hydrogen sulfide gas. the The number one worker made it out. The, the other two workers didn't. They had used a pump. They had lowered their own pump in there to evacuate the water and they went down in there to get the the serial number, the the model number off of a pump that was in there. Mm-hmm. First guy, and this is a classic thing. First guy goes in, starts feeling woozy, can't get out. Second, Second guy, worker goes yeah. in, same thing. And they're all breathing H2S, yeah. gas, below grade. Third worker goes in, starts to feel the same way, climbs back out the two workers remaining were still alive when we showed up. This was a, this was a rare instance where we were, this happened in our first due area. So every fire station has a neighborhood that it protects. That's your first due. Mm-hmm. Uh, second due is the next closest station. Third due is after that. Right. Sure. So this was a TRT and, you know, we'd run TRT calls all over the place. So a lot of times we had kind of, you have time to plan, right? Mm-hmm. This was a, a four minute response. Mm-hmm. So, my engine and support truck show up and hop out. My captain tells me we got two down in the in the trench or in the in the space, and we start setting up for a confined space rescue. They're, we were still in rescue mode. Mm-hmm. Over the period of time that it took to set up our gear, and by the way, we're one of the f- fastest TRT companies in the valley because the guy that teaches TRT 
as everything labeled, everything pre-assembled. We could put our, our confined space gear in service really fast on the order of like 10 minutes to 12 okay. minutes. That's ridiculously fast. Yeah. And I worked on a great crew and we worked together and meshed. If anybody had a chance at saving these two guys, it would have been us. Mm-hmm. Over the, just that period of time that it took to respond, get the gear going, this space started to refill with water because everything is still draining in yeah. there from all of the, all the occupancies around. So if they weren't dead by hydrogen sulfide gas, they were going to drown. Yeah. So we switch to recovery mode. Rescue mode is when you have a viable patient. Recovery mode is when you're recovering a body. Mm-hmm. Okay, everything slows down. Yep. We bring in hazmat teams. This, this was a, a technical rescue involving confined space is extremely equipment intensive. Mm-hmm. Add hazmat onto that and you have probably the most complex rescue call hype yeah. that you can yeah. have. Um. And I, lo and behold, I'm the most experienced member there. So I'm going to get lowered on the winch cable in the tripod mm-hmm. first to recover the first body. So like it was freaking yesterday, um, I get lowered through a hatch that's, that's narrow enough that I have to kind of do one of these to get lowered through it. Step yourself, yeah. Mm-hmm. Just... And they're lowering me down on, on the winch cable. And uh, at least I wasn't flying under the helicopter this time. It was <laughs> yeah. a winch on the ground. And um, I remember, you know, when you, if you're walking into a swimming pool that's a little too cold and you kind of go, yeah. holy shit. Yeah. I remember that feeling distinctly as, as I'm sinking below grade, mm. right? Oh, and it's dark. I have my headlamp. I've got a second source of light hanging off my harness. And I remember just thinking, get your shit together. Do you have an oxygen, you have oxygen tank? Yeah, so in a confined space, go back. If you're in a fire, a a firefighter has an air pack on. It's it's completely mobile. It's not hooked to anything. SCBA. SCBA. So um, confined space, you're on supplied air. Mm -hmm. So there's a bottle. There's two bottles on a cart, 300 feet of hose, um, 300 feet of comm cable Mm -hmm. because you have live communications. audio communication, um, tons and tons of gear, but there's an, there's something called an escape bottle. So if there's a malfunction with the main, uh, air supply, you've got about 15 minutes of air in this tiny little escape bottle that's, that's yeah. on your harness. Yeah. Funny you asked that, Dave. That was the reason I had to do this because when it, they were it lowering me stuck. down, <laughs> yeah, it was getting hung up on the, at this point okay, too, that's it. very important to keep that. Thing. Yes. Yeah, yes. 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 Yeah. So I'm getting, I'm getting lowered down into the space and it's pitch black down there. They had lights up above, but it's 36 yeah, it's inches across carrying any light. with a steel plate on yeah. top. That's, that's about like, 20 inches. Yeah. Um, so there's no light getting down there. It's just, you know, my headlight. And as I look down with, with my headlamp, I can, I can see the two workers mm. there in the, in the bottom of this thing. And uh, there was a ladder that, that went down into the space that, that they were all kind of entangled in. It was their ladder that they used to get in there. Um, and as they lowered me down, I, I, 
it was too late, but I realized there's nowhere to stand. Um, so I, I wound up standing on them. Mm. Um, I'm going to keep my shit together. I promise. So, um, my job was to package the, the first patient and, um, attach the, the rope system to him. And then they would, uh, raise me out and then they would raise the victim out. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in addition to having to kind of stand on the guys, I wound up having to give a big bear hug to this pop worker to make the connection yeah. around him. Um, and we're, we're in sewage. I mean, this, this is just about as fucked up as it can get. Right. Yeah. Um, so, and all that, I get hoisted out. They hoist the victim out. Now there's a decon process where I walk from the entrance of the space over and go through three kiddie pools yeah. where they're hosing me down and scrubbing Full me. Full decontamination. And, right. Yeah. And by the time I get to the final pool, I take, take my, um, my mask off and I kind of do one of these. Like, oh, shit. I'm a medic. I know what hydrogen sulfide does to you. Makes you feel like you're drunk. Mm-hmm. And you, once you've been exposed, you can't smell it. And I realize, fuck, I can't, I can't smell it. And I feel really woozy right now. Yeah. God damn. And I, so I start looking at my suit. I'm like, I, I tore it because my feet are soaking wet. I thought I, I've been standing in that. Yeah. And I got exposed to it. I'm like, God damn it. I realized that my boots were half full of my own sweat. Oh. After the fact. Um, They take my vitals and my heart rate's like 180. My BP is lower than it should be. Mm -hmm. Um, So I get transported to the hospital. Um, I didn't get exposed to hydrogen sulfide gas. This this rescue happened in August in the valley. It was way over 100 degrees. Yeah. 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 Um, so a traumatic event doesn't have to, but a lot of times it involves injury. Sure. I mean, you guys see it in the military. If you, oh, you got fucking blown up. There you go. Yeah. Right. Makes sense. Um, I got kind of blown up a bunch of times and really blown up. It's the micro. Several yeah, times. It's the micro events. Yeah. Really it's the up. training. It's blowing the door. Like, yeah. And where you, I don't have my ear pro, but fuck it. Just, just do it. Yeah. Boom. Yeah. You're like, yeah. right. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of the, that's a similar thing. So, so over the 27 years, this is just one event and there's an ample amount of these that sure. are adding up and just chipping away at you without you really realizing because you're keeping yourself constantly busy and mo- moving on to the next thing and probably immersing yourself too far into work mm-hmm. where you just completely forget how to take care of yourself and your mental health. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So this, and this adds up. Yeah. And then it, it does. And uh, you know, another coping me- mechanism, alcohol. Yes. And Rick's fun. He loves to party fucking a like, well, okay. Yeah. I like to have a good time, but I also really like to numb myself. It was masking. <laughs> yeah. That's classic yeah. sign and symptom. Yeah, it is. for sure. So my first ex- real experience with PTSD was when I crashed my motorcycle yeah. On the racetrack, um, I I went straight into a tire barrier at about ninety miles an hour with catastrophic brake failure. Mm-hmm. 
broke my neck in two places, mid-shaft femur fracture, and broke my ankle. Mm-hmm. I didn't crash my motorcycle one time. I crashed it every night for about three months. Oh, yeah. Right before I would fall asleep. And this is how vivid it was. Here, here's another one. Flashbacks. Yeah. yeah. When you're racing motorcycles, when you're road racing, if you're behind somebody, you can, their exhaust, like race exhaust, VP race fuel oh, yeah. smells a certain way. I think it smells freaking great. <laughs> yeah. But it, you, you'll never forget that smell. Yeah. I could smell it again every night. And... Mm-hmm. I could remember the events leading up to the crash right up until I hit the barrier and then it was lights out. Yep. Fortunately, I don't remember after that until I was getting wheeled into surgery and they were like, hey, we're operating on your left leg. Okay. You know, and I, I was yeah, back yeah. out. Yeah. Um, and then woke up in the ICU. Um, so, yeah, I would crash my bike every night. And it yeah, was reliving vivid. your experiences. I would... I would, I would I would jump like mm. in like as I you know that feeling like you're falling right yeah, as you yeah. fall asleep. Sometimes you do a weird like, stage sleep two. Jerk, like, yeah. what? stage two of sleep. Yeah, yeah, it was that like yeah. in a real bad way. Yeah, that's your body telling you that it's yeah. you know is so, it safe to sleep? At that point, that was my first experience with uh, some psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. So I I didn't go to a psychiatrist. I went to a psychologist, counselor, and and just just did did counseling. And it helped, but I was never actually diagnosed with PTSD, which blows me away. I can't believe that anybody would, would yeah. look at this and not say, yeah, it, very hey, normal. It's, um, it's a tough one to diagnose because most people who actually have PTSD don't want to talk about it enough right. to give the doctor enough information mm-hmm. to diagnose yeah. them with PTSD. Yeah. And I was just isolating it to this motorcycle crash was really bad, mm-hmm. not... I had those that Boy Scout troop that drowned in a yeah. flood, flooded wash. I had this house fire as a fatality. Mm-hmm. I didn't talk about any of that All stuff. Those I was other just, I'm just here to talk about this. Events. It was yeah. kind of like the, the work comp board. What was your date of injury? Yeah. Oh, my date of injury was just the motorcycle. I, I didn't realize that yet. Yeah. So fast forward to 2019. Prior to the, about a year prior to this, Something that I really loved doing uh, cost me dearly. I had been mentoring another firefighter at my station for about a year. And he was known as a poor performer. And he worked at a different station. He, he had actually gotten onto the TRT team somehow. Mm. A spot opened at my station. And we're trying to kind of figure out, you know, when somebody's leaving, the crew thinks, hey, who who can we get? Like, ah, they'd be good. Or like, and I thought, this guy would be a good project for me. Sure. If I can unfuck that guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all right. Cool. And I, I wasn't looking for a pat on the back. I was looking for a personal challenge. Mm, like, yeah. I, I can. Take it to 11. I can yeah, turn my it to 11. teaching into something really yeah. special that, will, that can even reach somebody that, that is known to have really poor skills. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we're getting that guy. Please, can't, yeah. All right, dude, you got him. If he comes here, you're handling, no problem. He was, he was the kind of guy that you trained for the first time. Every day he showed up. Oh, yeah. It, it was that kind of a thing. So kind of a Total, struggle. It was fine. It, it is what it is. It was what it was. He, he could follow instruction on calls. 
he, he had a, a base level of competency. Mm-hmm. It's fine. He accused me of bullying. So remember, I was qualified as, a, as an acting captain. So our captain had been off with a health issue for a while, and I was bumped up into the captain's seat for like weeks. He couldn't put together that on one day, I could be sitting in the back seat with him, but then for weeks following, I would be telling him what to do because I was the captain. Mm-hmm. Um, he came forward and claimed that it made some really outrageous claims uh, that I was bullying him, even that I had assaulted him. He so there's something there's a forcible entry tool in the fire service called a Halligan. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's like a it's like twenty five pounds twenty five pounds. It's you know a few feet long and it's got points all over it. Yeah. You, you guys probably if you're oh, going through doors, yeah. right? Okay. Familiar. Um, yeah, we carry yeah. we carry one of those. He, <laughs> he claimed that I had thrown one of those at him in a fire. Fuck somebody like, up with that. Yeah. Here's here's what proves that that absolutely was not true. I would never let go of a tool in a fire, yeah. right? You know, if you walk in with something as yours. Yeah. Um, made a bunch of cr- other crazy claims. The city of Scottsdale is very risk averse. Mm-hmm. They put me on paid administrative leave. And I'll never forget this one. Lynn and I are getting ready to go to the gym one afternoon, the day before I'm going back to work. It's like four o'clock. HR calls me and says, report to headquarters tomorrow morning. Bring your badge, your ID, and any equipment you have with you. That's not a good sign. Oh, man. And silence. And I said, whoa, 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 hold on a second. Why? Because when you guys do this to people, it never turns out good. Tell me, you know, you got to give me something. This is going to be a long night already. Um, The HR rep said, and you you could hear a couple people, uh, they're talking in the background, and, and she said, uh, there was a complaint against you. Mm. Oh, okay. Fast forward a little bit. HR does a full investigation of the events that, that he claimed um, had happened and also interviews with all of the people that I had mentored and worked with. They put me back on the truck a couple weeks later. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. they pulled me back into the office and slid my badge and ID back across the desk to me and said, hey, I'm sorry, um, you're going to another station and we're, we're going to work this out. Okay, yeah. got it. Mm-hmm. So I, and they're like, just put your head down, do the good work that you do, go back. Okay, cool. But in leaving, they said, just know that if we had found something, you would not be going back. Mm. You'd, be, you'd be out. Yeah. You would mm-hmm. be let go. So be cool. Yeah, keep your head don't, down. Don't worry. Everything's cool. Color. This person found out that I was, I was going to be eventually coming back to this, the same station. He made another claim that he, that he was afraid of me. Mm. I, I don't know if you guys think I'm a threatening character at this point, but <laughs> I'm not. I'm, yeah. I'm really laid back. He was told by my captain and our battalion chief, you're not in any kind of danger. But when you take that to headquarters, they are, they're, they're bound to act. Yeah, they're obligated. Yeah. yeah. So there's another meeting and the fire chief tells me, you've got somebody that says he's afraid of you and that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going roving 
and you're not working at that station anymore. Roving means you're going to fill in at stations around the city whenever somebody's off yeah. or, or just back vacation or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Am I still going to be TRT? Nope. Okay. Got it. Yeah. So you he escorted me to things. the station, so and I unloaded yeah. my locker. Yeah. Took all my shit out of, out of my locker. Years. And you're just thrown and to the wind now, like that. Yeah. Get, get no comfortable in your, in your truck because now you're going to drive around and, and fill in. So you lose your sense of purpose. Yeah. Mm. That's Which another. is ironic because if you think about how I was off duty, I wasn't a firefighter off duty. Yeah. On the outside. But in your heart, if you're a firefighter, it's your core core. Yeah. 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 That's, that is what you, part of your what you are, major identity. it's what you do and it's who you are. It's like the party question. Oh, what do you do? Yeah. Um, the answer is, I do, the, the party answer is not, I fight fire in Scottsdale. The, the party answer is, I am a firefighter paramedic. I, you answer, I am. It's, it is, it's, it's just who you are. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've lost my identity. Um, by the way, when I started as a firefighter, I couldn't legally buy a beer. <laughs> mm-hmm. And now I'm in my late 40s. Yeah. So that was a, that was a big event. Yeah. It wasn't a call, but it was very fucking traumatic, I promise yeah, you. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. so was that, is that what led up to, that was the... That was a, that was a huge part of it. The finishing factor. A huge factor. part of so it. So walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, so Lynn and I take this badass vacation right before my birthday. We spend 16 days on the West Coast. We see, we see the, the coast of Oregon. We shot archery at the Eastern Archery Center in, mm. in Salt Lake City. We went to Yosemite. Like, just amazing trip, right? Yeah. The very first call on the first morning back is a code. It's an opiate overdose. And this kid is dead. Mm-hmm. I know it. We all know it. But the mother is right there. So that was, all, that, that was always kind of the worst thing for me. Yes, I can look at a patient ob- objectively and like, okay, Let's get an airway. Let's get a line. Let's mm. dump Narcan in them. Let's you know see what we can do. Get the monitor on asystole. You know, do do the whole thing. Yeah. But hearing hearing her crying, that was louder than the monitor going. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's pretty devastating. Yeah. And it's the very first thing. I'm on this high from an awesome road trip, and I come back and it's bam, the yeah. knockout punch, punch yeah. in the face. And it's just, it, it threw me, mm-hmm. right? Um, on September 11th, I had a bad day shooting archery. I, I, I trained pretty hard at, at archery and I got very good at it. Mm-hmm. it. It just didn't seem like it worked that day. And that night, a, a small argument between Lynn and I turned into me catastrophizing mm. another symptom like Absolutely. this is the fucking end of the world when it's not mm-hmm. um, saw me the next morning going to my station making access to the storeroom uh, where extra medical equipment was stored for events in Scottsdale including took, pharmaceuticals right yeah I took six narcotics pouches out of those bags and checked into a very nice hotel down the street, 
and um, called Lynn. And I, I told her years earlier that, hey, babe, at some, time, at some point I'm going to call you and I'm going to say, hey, uh, just talk to me. How was your day? That means something fucked up just happened, and I just want to hear the sound of your voice. Mm-hmm. When kids, uh, when kids code, and we treat them, the, all the fathers and the mothers in the fire service, they come back to the to the station, and they call, "Hey," and you could hear them on the phone, "Hey, baby, hey, it's Dad. Yeah. How you doing today?" Because they're checking in on their kid. Yeah, right. So. I said, hey, at, at some point I'm going to call you and I'm going to say, hey, just talk to me. Tell me what you ate for lunch, whatever, just so I can get my feet on, on the ground because she's my grounding agent. She's my rock, right? She's who I go to when the fucked up things in life happen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I found that. I have somebody in my life that I can do that. I can do these, you know, these incredible trips that we take and you know, coming to San Antonio. Ten days ago, I think, I sent you guys an email saying, hey, here's my story, and you invited me on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was like, fuck it, we're going to San Antonio. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm on a high, and then I'm on a low, and then I just, my plate was full, mm-hmm. and it overflowed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you make the call so, to Lynn. And I call her, and I say, hey, I just wanted to, just wanted to hear your voice. Don't worry about me. She asked, she asked where I was. And I said, ah, don't worry about it. I'm okay. Hang up the phone. She was a school nurse at the time. And every school in Scottsdale has a, has a school resource officer, police officer stationed there. So she went to him and said, something's wrong with Rick. I need to try and find him. Mm. Ah, okay. I'll call dispatch. We'll ping his phone. So he comes back to, to her and says, where would he be if he was near Scottsdale Road in Lincoln? And she said, this resort name. And he, he said, well, how, how do you know that? And she said, that's where I took him for a staycation for his birthday a couple of days ago. Mm. Okay. While that's happening, I'm putting an 18-gauge in my left AC, hanging a liter bag of saline on the floor lamp from the hotel room with the shade taken off, mm. you know, like an impromptu IV pole, drinking a, a big glass of wine from the, from the mini fridge in the room and listening to some country music. And I mixed up, um, I'll tell you, um, 120 milligrams of morphine, mm. 120 of Ativan and 50 of Versed. That's so that's very lethal cocktail. Pretty much ten times what it would take. Yeah, um, and I fucking cranked it to eleven one last time. Um, I pushed it, and I just fell asleep. Jesus! And in that moment, um, in that moment, I I actually felt peace because I knew I was never going to, I was never going to see another burned up body. Yeah. I was never going to have anything that I've really valued as a, as a man, not just as a firefighter, but as a man mm. taken away from me because mm-hmm. of some fake bullshit. Um, I, I knew that, it, that I wouldn't have to suffer anymore. Yeah. Right. Um, 
Did you have any regret in that last? Nope. Not at all. But I'll tell you when I did. At the time, um, PD was responding to our house. They didn't find me there. And they responded to the hotel. Mm-hmm. And they, they found my truck in the parking lot, figured out what room I was in, and uh, got the key, opened the door. And the first responding officers administered all of their intranasal Narcan mm-hmm. for protocol. My goal was not to fail, clearly, with the amount of shit that I push. Yeah. yeah. I put a note on the door, attention made on the inside of the door frame, attention maids, do not enter, call police. I left my ID um, on the table. My plan was to have PD respond over a day later yeah. and find a dead body. And that's it. They bring the coroner, they do a report. EMS does not respond. The last fucking thing I wanted was anybody I knew Mm -hmm. to see me. Yeah, absolutely. Let alone the guys from the other shift from my station. And And that's who showed up, huh? That's a big, big fucking regret. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, But I sure am glad that they showed up because they hosed me down with all of their Narcan from two drug boxes. Mm. Um, You know that there's a benzodiazepine in that cocktail that they couldn't treat for. Yeah. Um, They took me to Osborne, the hospital a few miles south, and I was in the ICU for a week. Um, It's about about four or five days they were trying to extubate me and get me to breathe on my own. It wasn't working. Mm-hmm. Like after this, I think maybe the second day, third day, uh, finally on the fourth, fourth, fifth day, I was able to maintain my own airway and breathe. Okay. And the first thing I remember was waking up in the ICU. And, and mind you, I, I think that was the third time I've woken up in an ICU. Mm-hmm. I remember the clock at the foot of the bed up on the wall. It was the first thing that I, that I remember seeing. And then I kind of did the system ch- systems check, like yeah, yeah, like why am I heaven? Like oh, yeah, where am I? Yeah. And then and then I thought, what the fuck? That didn't work. <laughs> yeah. And then I wow. looked to my right, and Lynn was sitting there, and and uh, yeah, that was a, that wasn't the biggest regret. Probably a rather difficult moment because look, no, no matter how dark of a time you're in as a firefighter. Um, or a medic or a vet, Mm. um, no matter how much peace you find in that moment where you're doing what you're going to do, whether it makes a mess or not, Mm -hmm. um, it's those people around you that matter. Yeah. It's not the tone of the flat line. It's the the tears of the person yeah. that you leave behind. Everyone else who's... That's the worst fucking thing about this. Yeah. Um, and when you're in that dark of a place, you, you don't think about that. Mm-hmm. All you're thinking about is make this stop mm-hmm. somehow. And by considering doing something like that, you're willing to take the most extreme measures possible to make this stop. Absolutely. So I'm alive, I'm breathing, I'm in the ICU, and now comes the mental health portion of the exercise. 
the IFF is the International Association of Firefighters. That's our union. Mm. They have a facility called the Center of Excellence in Maryland. And that's an inpatient treatment center that provides mental health services and substance abuse services to firefighters and EMS workers. Mm-hmm. They're backlogged because there's one of these in the country. Mm-hmm. For there was all a, firefighters in the U.S. There's a waiting list to get in there. Um, my union local contacted them and, and explained the situation and one of our, our executive board members walked into my room and said, hey, bro, um, there's a place in Maryland called the, the COE. You want to go? Yeah. 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 Fucking A, I do. Let's uh-huh. do it. Can we go now? Like when? Uh-huh. Let's go. Um, those other two, the first two times that I woke up in an ICU, dozens, probably hundreds of, of other firefighters came through to, to say hi. This time they, they stopped visitors, but about 30 fire guys made it through. That's kind of what they do. Yeah. They all gave me a big hug. They all cried. And they all said, bro, I have felt the exact same way. Mm-hmm. Kind of a realization for you in that moment. That, that was what planted... This seat, yeah, because there are a bunch of rock hard dudes that I know, and they got it too. Yeah, I fly to Maryland. I wind up with a couple of pulmonary embolisms because I've been in the hospital laying in a bed for a week, and I flew four hours. Um, but fuck it, I mean, I needed help, and that yeah. it was there. Um, wound up back in the hospital in Maryland for a few days. And then back to the COE. At the COE, I got the equivalent of, a, of four or five years of therapy compared to a firefighter going for an hour a week. Mm. So that hour a week for five years is basically what I, what I got over yeah. the course of about a month and a half. Okay. That was group therapy. That was a, um, a lot of classes. That was where I learned what this is. Uh, I sat in front of a psychiatrist for the first time, told her my my situation, and within about 30 minutes, she had diagnosed me with severe anxiety, major depressive disorder, and complex PTSD. That doesn't surprise me one bit. No. No. Well, no, guess no. what? I had just done that. I'd been through all this shit, and it did surprise me, bro. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, yeah sitting, on, yeah. sitting on this side of the table, talk, having yeah. talked and no. known hundreds of people now diagnosed with it. It doesn't surprise me in the least that you were as well. Yeah, Be- yeah. because the same things that you were involved with and experienced, and the, and the trauma that you were exposed to is inc- incredibly similar. To I just never thought that it, that it would happen to me. Yeah, and you know what? I was a dick because there were other people that stepped forward with PTSD. And we look down upon that. Yep. Like there used to be a there's, stigma. There's two questions yeah. in the still fire is, department. Still is, yes. yeah. And that stigma has got to go away. Yeah, it does. There are two things that happen in the fire department that make fire crews driving around in the engine with the headsets on go, "What the fuck did they do?" Mm-hmm. One is is winning firefighter of the year. <laughs> what yeah. we just we had that crazy working fire last yeah. week. You pulled a guy out. You didn't get it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's a, it's a big measuring contest. Yeah. yeah. Okay. The other question that gets asked is, uh, is when somebody goes out with PTSD, what happened to that guy? Yeah. I, I don't think there's anybody that would look at my career and go, 
that was some pretty heavy shit that he did over the years. Okay, I get it. The key is everybody's trauma is everybody's trauma. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you've been on for 27 years or 27 days. Yeah. It's, it's it is it is what it is. And how trauma affects you. Yes. I tell people that same thing all the time, you know, is you'll have people falling and tripping, you know, falling off a bike and getting PTS or a training environment and stuff. You can't measure someone else's situations and adversity compared to your own. You can't. And here's the, here's the key to that. It's wrong to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It is. If, if you're riding around a fire truck today and you're, you're making fun of somebody with mental health issues, you probably have mental health issues of your own that mm-hmm. you are masking mm-hmm. or you're just insecure enough that that's just something that you do. Yeah. And you're not everybody, you know, we eat our own. We're yeah. freaking sharks. If there's a little blood in the water, it's on. Yeah. We are freaking sharks in the yeah. fire service. Yeah. That shit has to change. And you've you know, experienced this firsthand. Sorry, I want to fast forward a little bit. We're just cutting short on time here, but you experienced that on the legal side after this, right? Yeah. Can so you, can you after, dive into that? after treatment at the COE, I fly back. Um, I'm getting ready for an, for an archery tournament. I'm going to the Vegas shoes, the biggest indoor archery tournament in the United States. Mm-hmm. And I'm shooting pretty darn good. Um, and I thought there might be legal consequences to what I had done. And I had heard that there might be, but months have gone by and nothing has happened. Mm-hmm. My plan was to pick Lynn up after work and drive straight to Vegas, quick four-hour drive, mm-hmm. stay in a nice place and shoot the Vegas shoot and have, have a great weekend. Yeah. I'm loading up my truck and I notice a black SUV come through my cul-de-sac and kind of drive through slow and then, and then drive out. And I, I, I noted it, but I didn't really think anything of it. Mm. About an hour later, after the truck was all loaded up and I'm going to pick up land, I pull out of my cul-de-sac and two unmarked black SUVs pull me over. They do a felony stop. I roll down the window. They announce themselves put my hands out the window. Uh, They come to the door, get me out, handcuff me in my neighborhood. Um, There's no reason to go about it like that, in my opinion. Yeah, that's making an example. Briefly touch on that. Yeah, so, and they know they're dealing with somebody else in public service. That's exactly what I mean. Yeah. It was not their choice. Those those marching orders were not, uh, you know, decided on by that, those three cops that did it, but... I'm standing there cuffed, standing on the, on the sidewalk, and I, I'm explaining to and the, the only I'm not worried about being cuffed and taken to jail. I'm worried about not picking Lynn up at, at work. Yeah. She's going to be waiting for me. So they pull my, my cell phone out of my back pocket, and I tell them, yeah, it's hit, hit Lois on there. So the cop's holding the phone up in front of me on speaker, and I, I, her nickname is Lois. I'm Clark. <laughs> you can do whatever yeah. math. I'm not going to ask. <laughs> Lowy, hey, um, that thing that, that we talked about happening, it's happening. Mm. There's this long pause. Lowy, the thing that I told you might happen one day is happening right now. Mm. She said, are you serious? Yes. Hey, this is officer so-and-so with Arizona State Attorney General's office. And... It, uh, they explained that. And then I said, Loie, call the people that I told you to call. And she said, okay, I love you. I'll see you. Mm. Okay. Got, the, got that in motion. Uh, so she got a hold of 
of what would become my le- my legal team. They took me down to Fourth Avenue, booked me. Um, jail is not a fun and the charges, place to be. the official charges. I was charged with five class three felonies, carrying a potential sentence of over thirty years. Jesus Christ! They were two counts of possession of narcotics two counts of possession of a dangerous drug and one count of computer tampering because it was because I had used the keypad key to get controlled into access. So on whatever day the attorney general presented this information to a grand jury, they decided, okay, in what let's, let's be the ones to turn it up what to 11 this fucking time. world did that jury was just like, yeah. That, yeah, that makes sense. Let's mm-hmm. charge yeah. this guy. This guy, well, yeah, try it. And this, this comes what assholes, into this. I'm sorry. Right, yeah. I gotta say, what fucking assholes. And you have a decision to make. Are you going to fight this and go sit in front of another jury? Yeah. Or make a plea bargain and make a deal? So, unfortunately, in this day and age, juries tend to be made up of people that can't get out of jury duty. Yeah. And I thought, okay, you... You did this to me as a as a jury. I'm not taking a chance and and fighting this to you know to tell you okay. Instead of thirty, how about five years? Like, nah. Yeah, there's no way. Still, so I get booked into into Fourth Ave. Uh, they let me out at about four in the morning. Like this is like February in Phoenix. It's pretty cold. And it's cold in jail too, by the way. I'm in jeans and a t-shirt and sandals and like, uh, like hand me my cell phone, push me out the door and it slams behind me and I'm standing on 4th Avenue in Phoenix in the middle of the night and I turn my phone on, call Lynn, hey, I'm coming home, getting an Uber. Walk in the house and I said, hey, um, rewind just a little bit. They They hand you a sack launch. Mm-hmm. So I had a I had a couple pieces of bread, some peanut butter, and an orange. And to pass the time, I'm I'm figuring out okay, if we leave for Vegas right now, I, th- I think I could I think I could still make it. Yeah, okay, uh, yeah, no, we're still good, we're still good. To pass the time, I I started pacing in this cell, and I'm looking at the, the it's you know all concrete cell, mm-hmm. there's stainless toilet and sink, and I thought, fuck, this is bigger than my bunk at work. <laughs> So I start bad. pacing back and forth and I do some math and I, and I figure out how, how many feet I'm taking per stride. And every time I did 10 laps, I'd tear off a little piece of orange peel and sit it on the, on the bench. I walked two and a half miles that night <laughs> in that cell pacing. back and yeah. forth. So I walk in the house and, and I say, hey, baby, um, did you unpack your bags? Yeah, but I didn't unpack yours. I pack yours again. We're going to fucking Vegas. Yeah. So throws our stuff together and we hit the road. Haul ass across the desert to Vegas, and we're we're making a plan because the, the my shooting time shooting at like noon or something. Figuring figuring things out, and she dropped me at the front door of the of the uh, the South Point Hotel and Casino. I jump out with my Pelican case with my bow in it, and I'm. I, like running through the casino to get to the registration, get checked in, put my bow together. And I shot a fucking personal best. (laughs) (laughs) Hours after I was sitting in jail, pacing back and forth. (laughs) So if you think that's a pretty good F you to 
anybody that got me there. You're right. Yeah, absolutely. That felt pretty good. It had to have. So anyway, after that, I, I, um, I make a plea deal and I plea guilty to a class six undesignated felony uh, for po- possession of drug paraphernalia. Okay. Yeah. And I served served time in probation. Mm-hmm. Okay. And that's since passed. So did my time. All free and clear. Yeah. So I have continued on with with my therapy mm-hmm. and processing. So um, I've used EMDR. Yes. That's been extremely helpful. That helped me process the worst of the bad calls. And um, I'm on a I'm on a very light med regimen mm-hmm. that helps immensely. Yeah. Combined with those two things, I have a shitload of tools that the Center of Excellence gave me. Yeah, from your therapy, and right? That, yeah, and that yeah. my therapists here have given me. So when I go to Costco, which is my nemesis, <laughs> because it's a lot. I have a, I have a bad. I have an elevated startle response. So bangs, a, a sudden dog bark. Mm-hmm. I'm like the cat, cartoon cat with its nails yeah, in the ceiling. Yeah, sure. Makes sense. No windows um, in Costco. Yeah. 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 Loads of people. Mm-hmm. Yes. When I was struggling with mine, it was Ikea. Yeah. <laughs> I had a breakdown in Ikea once. Cool. I know what's, I know your uh, style, the style of your house now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Stylish guy, Dave. <laughs> but yeah, Costco. I don't have one Ikea item in my house, by the way. What are you doing? I can't. The Swedish meatballs. <laughs> I did. Yeah. yeah. It's bulking season. It's crying while eating yeah. those. <laughs> yeah. So, so I use I use all those tools to to get me through situations that trigger me. At this point, I'm writing a book. That's helpful. Um, hope to publish that by the end of this year. Well, yeah. when you do publish that, let's get get you back on. Yeah. Because there is one million questions that I have for you. Cool. And unfortunately, we did run out of a little time. We went over, yeah. but um, that's that's a perfect perfect chance to get you back on the show I'd love to it. talk. Yeah. I, I want to dive into kind of your response with your relationships, and you know how those are remedied. And and I mean, honestly, this has only been a couple of years, truly. So yeah. there is yeah. a lot of growth that you're still going to have to face. You know, I mean, w- me, it took. You know, I was injured and. 2010, and I would say it probably took me seven, eight years to really feel comfortable um, with myself. And and uh, I wouldn't, I would never say that you're healed completely from, no. and you're never cured from PTS. But there is an adaptability towards it and yeah. overcoming those adversities. And then me is talking about stuff like this, just like you did yeah, with teaching for sure. Yep. Um, helped me get out of my you know, situation and, and overcome those obstacles. So. Yeah, and I think the, the message that I want to get across is, and with my appearances in the book and, the, and these things and sharing, sharing uh, what I know, is I would love people to be able to learn my lesson without having to go through my experiences. Exactly. And, the, and you are the perfect example of being able to facilitate that because you have 27 years of teaching experience. Um, You've gone through the experience. That's who you are as a person. This in seven years, eight, 10 years from now, you're going to look back at this as a resume piece mm-hmm. and a platform. And if you pitch it in the right, right way, you're going to be able to teach people those lessons so that they don't have to go through those experiences themselves. Yeah. And that truly is what I, what I hope to do. So yeah. 
people can reach out to me. My, you can email my direct email is, well, is, let, is tell, tell the audience. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's Rick Booker 603 at gmail.com. So R I C K B U C H E R 603, 603 at gmail.com. Um, yeah, reach out to me yeah. if if you think that that my story would be helpful for your for your organization or really if you if you're just if you're struggling yourself and you can't find the resources through your department or your union, shoot me an email. Like, absolutely, that's I, an amazing offer. Because guess what? Yeah. I still like helping people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. absolutely. Well, Rick, it's been phenomenal having you on the show. Thank like you I so said, much for I'm having me. Reserve the right to ask you for a part two on this. <laughs> yeah, um, when the book comes around, it's the perfect time to kind of push that out and talk yep. about it. Um, that would be fantastic to Sounds have you great. back on. Uh, really incredible story. There's moments there where I think I almost lost my shit with you. Same. Um, so, and both of us, I could attest to Christian's character as well as we both feel what you're feeling. And we're glad that you've overcome that stage in your life and learned a valuable, valuable lesson um, and hope that this story could impact, you know, thousands of people. Yeah, yeah I hope so. Yeah, incredible story, Rick. Uh, I mean, honestly, yeah, I, I don't have any more to say than what Dave just covered. It, it truly is incredible. And, and I do think that you're going to help a lot of people. Um, and I'm glad that you are, you are willing to be the trendsetter for, for the firefighters and the paramedics and, and all EMS in the community. Yeah. I, I think I, it, they I need it. I would rather not have to do this. Uh, I would rather not be able to do this. But I kind of feel it's my duty. But you are. At this point. Yeah. And that's and I just, I, from the bottom of my heart, thank you guys that, for having me. That's I really payment, appreciate it. Rick, your <laughs> payment back to society and yeah. everyone that loves you is to help other people so that they don't make that same mistake. Yeah, yeah. I agree. That well, is your punishment. <laughs> I'll take it. If you will. Well, we'll follow up with a part two maybe later this year. And, I'd love it. Yeah, uh, yeah we'll, we'll read that book when it comes out. So cool. do you have anything else for the audience before we wrap up? That's it. Thank awesome. you so much, everybody, for listening. And if you cool. think that this, that this story and this subject matter would help somebody, and they, you know what? They don't even have to be in the fire service or public safety or the military. If this would help anybody, yeah. pass it along. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Rick, thanks very much. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been the Medevac Podcast. Thanks for watching, and we will see you next time. See you guys. Bye.